Thank you. Um, thank you all for coming out. Um, I see a lot of familiar faces, which is really fun since I don't live here. Um, um, so yeah, I'm um, Ethan. I'm the editorial director of Grail of Press, and I've had the great privilege of working with Sarah on this book, but also on her last book, Ongoingness. But I'd actually been reading Sarah for many years before I was her publisher. I think I first came on her work um, in something called uh, 145 Stories in a Small Box. I don't know if any of you who used to read or subscribe to McSweeney's had that one, but it was this little volume of three short, short collections of short, short stories by uh, Dave Eggers uh, was one, and then Sarah was another, and Devil and Unferth was a third. Um, and um, Who is also your author now. Who is now also my author. That's true, actually, it's true. I'm, uh, Dave, Dave Eggers is going to have to come to Grey Wolf next, I guess. Clearly. I guess he's the only one left. I'll have to let him know. But um, um, And I'd been a big fan. I was a big fan of that book, but, of, of course, actually, even that was not um, Sarah's first. She'd been writing um, books of what other people were calling poetry, but I don't know if you would make that <laughs> distinction. Um, and uh, and then she went on to publish a couple of what other people were, have called memoirs, but again, I don't know if you would make that distinction among your books. And This is why Ethan's my publisher now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the truth is, I, I was, people say, oh, what do you edit, like fiction or nonfiction? I was just like, oh, I edit books. You know, I don't know. I don't know. Call them what, call, you know, whatever. The taxonomy is for the bookstore, not for, not for me as an editor or Sarah as a writer, I think. Um, but... Um, and then this book, but in, in recently her, book, her slim books have been getting even slimmer, and I think they're kind of interesting. But this one, if you look at it, which is this lovely kind of pocket-sized um, book called 300 Arguments, um, this book started as 200 Arguments, actually. So it was even slimmer and could have fit in an even smaller pocket. Um, but, um, uh, but in all seriousness, despite the kind of appearances, I, you know, have been amazed over the past couple of days when I've been going back through this book um, at how big it feels once you get inside of it and um, how much the spaces sort of swell and expand and give you, you know, know, encourage you to think and do your own questioning. And I keep on finding sometimes as I was rereading these, as I would say, I would be nodding my head and then I would think, wait, do I even agree with that? You know, it's this really interesting thing that forces you to question, you know, not just what Sarah presents, but your own ideas and your own thinking. And um, maybe that's in part the power of the aphorism, which is the kind of statement that this book is built on. Um, The trick of this book is while it looks like a series of sort of unrelated little aphorisms, um, little pithy sayings, um, they tend to, they start kind of aggregating into this hole and it, you, you really feel like you get a portrait of a person in a person's mind by the time you get to the end of it. Um, the aphorism is a super interesting form. I think Sarah's writing before this book had been, has been called aphoristic sometimes. And um, she, in fact, a few months ago wrote a review of um, several books of aphorisms and a history of aphorisms in Harper's. And I want to kind of just lay out there something that she wrote in Harper's um, where she said... Um, Some literary effects are possible only within the context of a durational reading experience. But I have a thing for writers who deliver their work by the line, the epigram, the aperçu. These smallest of literary forms are variously judged as hubristic, timid, virtuosic, lazy, wise. Charles Baxter, this is a quote. No one ever said that sonnets or haiku were evidence of short attention spans. Pascal. Quote, the present letter is very long simply because I had no leisure to make it shorter. Unquote. Don Patterson, who wrote a terrific book of aphorisms, um, 
Quote, the aphorism is a brief waste of time. The poem is a complete waste of time. The novel is a monumental waste of time. Um, so I wanted to kind of put that out there. That was Sarah kind of finding these um, other people thinking about aphorisms. And I wanted to ask Sarah, what, what is the aphorism to you? And did you kind of conceive of these as that, as part of that tradition, or did they sort of emerge later um, as part of that? The entire time I was writing this, I was running away from the word and the concept of the aphorism because I thought it was pretentious and it sounded pretentious. And um, from the beginning, I knew that I had to come up with a better way of describing them because I couldn't possibly say that I I had a book of aphorisms. I just I, I still I still feel like I I couldn't. Maybe I'll grow up and be able to do that at some point, but I can't do that currently. And so. Um, there were uh, you know I, I was trying out different ways of organizing them and understanding them and there are so many or there's so many different forms I mean they're all short but there are memoiristic um, you know they're an- they're they're some of them are anecdotal some of them are aphoristic sure but um, you know one of them is just something I overheard somebody say in a cafe and there are uh, you know there are, there are tiny poems and all of, all of these things um, I wanted to be able to call them one thing um, because I, they aren't all aphorisms I mean they're, they're, I would say like maybe 15% of them are even attempting to be aphoristic. Uh, and so I called them arguments because I was just kind of rooting around in various dictionaries and I liked this word's historical meanings, many of which have kind of fallen out of the popular imagination, but um, there are 15 of them that I collected and I'm, I want to I just say them. Um, so from the very beginning when it was a Latin noun through now, uh, the word argument has been taken to mean subject, theme, sign, mark, token, proof, hint, plot, declaration, evidence, burden, complaint, accusation, denouncement, and betrayal. And I thought that was a great collection. I mean, it just so capacious and descriptive and supple, and uh, I felt very free to just write anything and, and collect it under that word. That was actually um, that little sequence of descriptions of arguments are um, uh, were, were originally going to be the frontispiece to the book, but um, in Sarah's great ability to cut some amazing material, she um, took that she took that bit out. Um, but so there are arguments, and would you say there? I mean, are they arguments with the self, with world, with you know how? It, like what are you know? No, I mean they're not arguments with. Yeah. Um, they're and they're not even necessarily arguments for. But I you know I think of them lovingly as the I, as you know belonging to this word argument as I just defined it with these yeah. fifteen terms that nobody you know nobody necessarily makes. Um, you know, nobody necessarily associates all of which, uh, all, all of them with, with the word currently, um, but I do. So you know, it feels okay to me. And how did? Can you talk? You, I mean, obviously, I was sort of joking. This book was originally called Two Hundred Arguments, and then, um, mm-hmm. and um, can you tell talk a little bit how this gathered and how you realize? You know, so you've been as you've told me and as you've said in some in- interviews, you know, so, some of these came while you were doing some other thing, but then yeah. how did you realize... Yeah, and I talk about that in the book itself. And, you know, you appear in, in the book as this person who's, like, very wisely suggesting that at this point in my career I should publish a long book, and I should, you know, try to come up with, you know, like a, 
you, you would never say this, but like a grown-up book, a long book, you know, over 200 pages for once. And um, I published so many writers, you know, so I'm always telling them you should write a get, little book. Get the show on the road, like write your essay collection, like let's, you know, it's time. And so I was working on that book and, you know, not really making much headway. And then the best way to start a project is to do it like as a, as a, as a dirty habit on the side a pro, you know, a procrastination habit. You know what you should be doing uh, instead of this this like exciting thing that you're doing. Instead, um, for me, was this this book about Boston and um, my family and race and whiteness and hate and um, and now Trump. Uh, so that you know, I, it's like I have all, I have all these ideas. Uh, <laughs> But uh, I haven't written the book, and I, I don't know how I'm going to write that book. But, um, but maybe you always need that big book to be the thing that allows you to write. Yeah, the which I also, which yeah, which is another one of the arguments. So yeah, I'm like it's like could not be more self-referential. But um, uh, it was great fun to come up with these 200, and then you know once once I got to 200, it was just it was so easy that I thought, okay, let's just keep let's let's go, let's go to 300, and then it, it was much harder to get to 300 and. So even though I would have loved to do 500, which is what Don Patterson did, which is what Jim Richardson did, you know, all of these contemporary aphorists, um, they do a book of 500 of them. Um, there was just no way. Like, it started becoming a thing that I needed a procrastination habit to avoid. And, like, once that happens, I know that I need to just kind of wrap it up. So you got 300. And, um, well, I think the best way to kind of tell you what this book is is to have Sarah maybe read a little bit from it. Oh. So, um, so maybe okay. you could read for like yeah. okay. 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, so I'll read to you from the beginning of the book. Uh, this is how it starts. Getting a little feedback. Mm. They can hear me pretty well. Okay. They're recording now, so... Okay. A great photographer insists on writing poems. A brilliant essayist insists on writing novels. A singer with a voice like an angel insists on singing only her own terrible songs. So when people tell me I should try to write... Thank you. Yeah. That's what's happening. Do you guys want to split that one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. Okay. Uh, so... Let's back up. Yeah. All right. Thanks for coming. <laughs> so, all right, here's how it begins. I'll start over. A great photographer insists on writing poems. A brilliant essayist insists on writing novels. A singer with a voice like an angel insists on singing only her own terrible songs. So when people tell me I should try to write this or that thing I don't want to write, I know what they mean. You might as well start by confessing your greatest shame. Anything else would just be exposition. It can be worth foregoing marriage for sex, and it can be worth foregoing sex for marriage. It can be worth foregoing parenthood for work, and it can be worth foregoing work for parenthood. Every case is orthogonal to all the others. That's the entire problem. I assume the cadets are gay, but then I see they are merely unafraid of love. They are preparing to go to war, and with so little time to waste, they say what they mean. At faculty meetings, 
I sat next to people whose books had sold two million copies. Success seemed so close, just within reach. On subway benches, I sat next to people who were gangrenous, dying, but I never thought I'd catch what they had. What's worse, offending someone or lying to someone? Saying something stupid when it's your turn or not saying anything? Tell me which and I'll tell you your problem. The trouble with comparing yourself to others is that there are too many others. Using all others as your control group, all your worst fears and all your fondest hopes are at once true. You are good, you are bad, you are abnormal, you are just like everyone else. Some people ditch friends and lovers because it's easier to get new ones than to resolve conflicts with the old ones particularly if resolving a conflict requires one to admit error or practice mercy. I'm describing an asshole, but what if the asshole thinks he's ditching an asshole? Inner beauty can fade too. The water birds near my house are in middle school. The coot's voices crack. The seagulls bully the ducks. The egret just got braces and stands humiliated by himself. Many bird names are onomatopoetic. They name themselves. Fish, on the other hand, have to float there and take what they get. I used to avoid people when I was afraid I loved them too much. Ten years in one case. Then, after I had been married long enough that I was married even in my dreams, I became able to go to those people, to feel that desire and to know that it would stay a feeling. In a dream, my friend and I begin the act and both immediately want it to be over. But we have to continue, impelled by some obscure reason. I wake wondering whether we could ever enjoy it. I think about it all day, really dedicate myself to it. I think about it for two more days, and that's how I fall in love with my friend. Like a vase, a heart breaks once. After that, it just yields to its flaws. In the morning, I wake amid fading scenes of different characters, different settings, all restatements of that first desire, a ghost who haunts me as the beauty he was at 16. My friend learns Chinese and moves to China, but her limited vocabulary is good for grocery shopping, not for falling in love. When her heart breaks, she's obliged to ask, why won't you fuck me? I've put horses in poems, but I've never written one. They just seem like such a good thing to put into literature. Biographies should also contain the events that failed to foreshadow. I remember a girl who was famous in school for having woken from a drunken blackout and said to whoever was there, are you my judges? In real life, my healthy boyfriend said that he envied my paralytic disease, that I'd earned the right to a legitimate nervous breakdown. A few years later, he was in an accident and became paralyzed from the neck down. That's just bad writing. It isn't so much that geniuses make it look easy, it's that they make it look fast. Of a page of perfect prose I read in a dream, I remember only this. Thank you, she said. 
Her simple answer concealed the truth. The man who had me in a phone booth married quickly after the affair ended. His novel had everything in it, the phone booth, the shame, the sash he sewed to wear over the surgical appliance in his belly. In the novel, it covers a plaster leg cast. The front page of his website is a glowing glass phone booth standing alone in snow. The book got bad reviews. He has two children. I never joined Facebook because I want to preserve my old longings and also yours. The fastest way to revise a piece of work is to send it late at night to someone whose opinion you fear. Then rewrite it, praying you'll finish in time to send a new version by morning. There's some writers here, I see. (laughs) Having a worst regret betrays your belief that one misstep caused all your undeserved misfortune. I don't write long forms because I'm not interested in artificial deceleration. As soon as I see the glimmer of a consequence, I pull the trigger. This is the last one. My teacher cried while I listened. None of his books had ever made money, not even the famous one, he said. He'd spent his life trying to write perfect books, and when he tried to make money, he couldn't. I didn't think I'd ever feel as old as he seemed at that moment, but here we are. Thank you. Um, those are so great. I, um, as I was, <clears throat> when I was first reading, the, the first time I was the first couple of times I was reading this book and going over it, I, I felt like the, um, these pieces were, I don't know, you could almost do a sort of taxonomy. As you say, they're actually only a handful, well, not more than a handful, but there's only a subset of this book that are traditional aphorisms, I guess, you know, things like the other, some others that you didn't read, but that um, I kind of jotted down are things like, bad art is from no one to no one. Um, and another was, there are two kinds of people, you and everyone else. Um, and these, to me, seem like the kind of, you know, really sharp, you know, like, you know... Uh, the shorties. The, the, the shorties seem like, like the kind of conventional aphorism that I think you talked about in your review. And, so, and as somebody said, that, you know, a traditional aphorism needs a twist. Mm-hmm. Can you describe that a little bit and, like, how... I don't know. I'll like, try. Yeah, that... Um, that idea belongs to, I think, James Geary. Was it? Yeah, that's yeah, it. That was it. Who, yeah. Um, wrote uh, a book that's kind of a a collection of aphorisms intermixed with a critical essay about aphorisms, and um, it's you know it's more it's more like an anthology, gently with a lot of gentle interruptions, and the book is called The World in a Phrase, and he defines the aphorism um, by uh, it's having three qualities. It has to be short. It has to be universal and it has to have a twist. I think that's. I think those are the three. And you know, of course, <laughs> that just seems to mean anything. Like anything under a paragraph <laughs> seems to satisfy that. I mean, but like, did you feel? But as you were twist? working on these, did you feel <clears throat> sometimes like? I mean, did you, I mean, did, did these emerge oh, with the twist first, enough. or that yeah. they, or that you had to push them, or so? How did you? Well, I do find their shapes. I guess one sometimes. of the best edits that you gave me to. A bunch of these. So the editor compliment fishing here. <laughs> no. um, and, uh, well, one, one of the best edits was um, you said that this needs more, like, you, or like it needs an extra beat, or it needs a last. It needs it needs to take one further step. And um, of course, I was immediately frustrated 
you know, like it, what? it's one, ideas? No, one <laughs> sentence. Like, how many more steps can it possibly take? And, you know, if the whole thing is a step, how can I add another step without just demolishing the structure of it? But, you know, you were, basically, you were right, like, you know, most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I ask. Um, but, but what you're asking for was that twist. It was, it was, it's the last, you see, you know, I mean, you see where it's going. There's not a lot of places to hide content in a, in a sentence or even in three sentences, but... Um, yeah, there's, no, there's one later that has kind of what I think of as sort of a good twist. Is, I wish someone would tell me what I should be doing instead of this, that he'd be right, and that I'd believe him. So it's that last bit, the, the, and that I'd believe him, is, you, is, is a real revelation of character in a way. It tells you a lot about, yeah. you know, um, you know the, I think what the interesting, one of the interesting things about the book and the way that it doesn't just remain a collection of these, you know, very bright, sharp observations, but becomes sort of a portrait of the artist in a way is in those little twists I think sometimes um, where, where you know where you know all of us feel um, you know we wish we knew what we were doing or something but the sense of that I wish somebody I would believe somebody tells you a lot about you know the author um, so I think I think that's kind of an interesting thing in the book but the uh, there um, so then there are those aph- aphorisms and then there are, there are the things that I started thinking of as um, mathematical equations um, or um, that um, I mean, you read you read one that you read one the one about things being orthogonal to the other. They're, maybe they're like not exactly mathematical, but they're logical sequences. Um, maybe you can read another one. Let's see. Yeah. I've got. Uh, let's see. Maybe the one on. Yeah, maybe the one on on um, sixty six. They're just kind of like logic sequence about bad bad books sell. That one. Oh, that one. <laughs> this is kind of good. Okay. Bad books sell, people have bad taste. Bad books don't sell, people prefer great books. Great books sell, after all, they are great. Great books don't sell, they are too great to be understood. Great books sell only after their authors die. We're comfortable with all of these cliches, even though they can't logically coexist. Um, and then, uh, maybe we'll read one more so you can get a flavor of some of these. Um, Maybe the one um, on page 11, we like stories. I'm kind of picking some that are a little bit about writing, but um, we like stories. Oh, yeah. I was going to read that, but I skipped over it. I don't know. It's sometimes the, the rhythm just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so here, here's one that, well, that I skipped. We like stories that are false and seem true, realist novels. That are true and seem false, true crime. That are false and seem false, dragons and superheroes or that are true and seem true, but it's harder to agree on what that is. That one's harder to... There's some... That, yeah, that one, that one's I think a little I tricky. Maybe let's try one more. Let's, sorry, let's do... Um, and then this will lead somewhere else. Um, the bottom of 26. And this one really does sound a little mathy. Another one with the X or yeah. the A? Right, let's just read both of them, I guess. I'll do the, I'll do the X. Maybe the X makes, makes more sense. It takes X hours to write a book and some percentage of X hours to wish I were a different writer writing a different book. <laughs> um, so I don't. I, you know, anyway, so there are a whole chunk like that, I guess, that that sort of seem, you know, to have these sort of logical strains. And then, and then there are these pieces that feel like, you know, little memoirs. And Sarah read some of them about the, you know, the ex in the phone booth. And you know, there are these pieces that feel self-contained, but are absolutely, you know, scenes or stories from your yeah. life. There were more of them. I well, I was going to ask you, how did you end up balancing th- these? I mean, did you? Did you consciously try to have different types of statements in the book, or did you did they sort of balance out that way? 
Mm, no, I didn't. I didn't try to write anything in particular. Every every one of the arguments came out of a like a legitimate problem, like a bad feeling about something that had happened, or like an old bad feeling about you know everything that had ever happened, or um, you know just something some conflict I'd had that was like interesting to me, like more interesting than the length of the conflict. And so like each one is definitely, it's about something. It's about something that, that I thought or felt or did. And so um, I think the ones that got, got revised out of it, I think for, for good reason, are just the ones that are like, this happened. Some of them are still in there. I think mm -hmm. the, more, the like slightly more interesting things that happened, but um, <laughs> you know, I mean, th those are obviously not aphorisms. It's like right, this, they're they're not universal. The they're not yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. it, yeah. It's just it's just um, it's just an account. Um, in that, it, there there are a lot. There's a lot of um, one of the, what's, what was interesting about going back to this book after having not read it for several months um, in the last couple of days is uh, how many different angles into it I found that uh, you know that it tends to kind of grow you know you can you know kind of come back to it and see different patterns in it which I found really fascinating having read it already you know several times um, but a lot what, one of the main threads that was apparent from the very beginning is that this book is itself a defense of the miniature of, of the small object for its own sake of the you know that it's the resistance to um, a big book although you've st you stated in the questionnaire for Grey Wolf you wrote um, 300 Arguments is a book I wrote in lieu of a big, big book. Um, and, um, and then, you know, there's, there are quite a number like that. There's, um, oh, there's this one. Well, yes, exactly. There's the back of the book, which is, um, think of this as a short book composed entirely of what I hoped would be a long book's quotable passages. Um, <laughs> but then there's, then there's this one, too, that I used to write. Oh, I, yeah, so this is... This is the sort of more elegant account of the story that I told you about why I wrote the book. But I used to write these while playing hooky on what I hoped would be my magnum opus. Assigning myself to write 300 of them was like forcing myself to chain smoke until I puked, but it didn't work. I didn't puke. <laughs> um, and then, again, actually, sorry, and this one, too, is, is relevant oh, to because I want to talk about this. Oh, okay, um, fragments, yeah. The word fragment is often misused to describe anything smaller than a bread box, but an 800-page book is no more complete or unbroken than a 10-line poem. That's confusing size with integrity. An ant is not a fragment of an elephant except orthographically. Um, so I found this to be, you know, in, that you know that this, this book was a, a defense and um, in itself a kind of... Um, uh, example of what a small book can do, and yet there's this sense that it has to be defended. Yeah, well, I I have this sense very much. I'm sure many poets don't have that sense. Like their their form is simply a small form, or a visual artist who just uses small, you know, makes small paintings or um, small sculpture. It, uh, but for some reason, with with writing, um, I. Feel something short needs to be defended more. Maybe because everybody knows how to type a lot of stuff now, and like every everybody can write anything and put it on the internet, and it's like every you know it. Um, and I'm sure this says more about me than about you know like a very confident poet who just writes ten line poems. Um, Jeffrey Nutter didn't he write that book that was all like ten or yeah. some very small number of lines? 
Um, and it, you know, it's a legitimate project if the author acts and says and feels that it's a legitimate project. But while I was making this book, it just didn't feel like a legitimate project. So a lot of that um, kind of internal conflict is captured in the text of the book. And I, and I think that's interesting, too. I mean, the, you know, I see another writer I've worked with in the audience um, who's been told many times um, that he needs, you know, that, that the publishers are waiting for it, the big book. But the books uh, are the, the big no, books are the big book. You know, everybody, right? Know? I, I wasn't. I don't know. Maybe I was. <laughs> Um, and uh, I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Jeff. Um, and um, uh, but I think that's but the this, this sense that you, that the project isn't recognized in a way that um, you know that the you know that the books well, you know that the books are their own statement and that you would be a different writer if you were writing 800 page books. You know, so it wouldn't even make sense yeah. in a way. I mean, if I were a writer for whom an eight, the 800 page book was my natural register yeah. and like a form that was comfortable, then then yeah, I would I would just be doing that. But But know. there seems like also your um a lot of these pieces are about as you said something there's that line about genius being speed, I guess essentially, and then you had another line of, there, there's a lot about efficiency in here, and that you see so do you feel like that as a reader too when you go to big books, do you see them as having flab or do you see them having their own justification you- this is a terrible thing to admit and uh, but okay i I haven't read a long book in a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm teaching a class on autobiography right now, and all of the books are... I mean, I wanted them to read 13 books, and so they, they're all under 200 pages. And, um, you know, many of my favorite new, new, newly published books are also approximately that size. J.D. Daniels' book, The Correspondence, oh, yeah. which mm-hmm. I think Excuse is me. out or almost out, and um, Otessa Moshveg's um, really short novel, Eileen, which I think is a perfect book, and I've argued with so many fiction writers who say that her her stories are better, but I mean it's like it's the perfect short novel. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I I did start reading the Golden Notebook, but it was a library copy, and yes, I use the library, and I should buy books, but um, maybe I'll buy one today, <laughs> and uh, and and read it. Have you read the Golden Notebook? I no, that was so huh? not no. Yeah, well, it's a long book. That I mean, it's it's an amazing book. Um, or so I hear. <laughs> Someday. Um, um, the, one of the kind of other, there are a lot of little swirls, swirling themes in the books, and one of them, what I, which I found I would never be able to write about honestly, is envy, um, which I found to, I found very fascinating in your hands, and and you, it, you actually wrote a whole piece about it in the New York Times Book Review too about envy, um, and maybe you could read a few oh, of sure. these. I think these are starting around seventy three. Okay. Um, Let's see. You could start with one woman, maybe. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think there's a little stretch here. Okay. So. How? But I cut, let's see, right through. Should I go through fascinatingly old, or like there? Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. One woman is beautiful. The other isn't. Both are brilliant wits. One boasts a scholarly fluency. Both have earned a lot of money from their writing. Neither has children, both live alone. One of them tends toward cuteness, the other toward pedantry. I realize I don't envy them exactly. I envy a hybrid monster with some qualities of each woman, but all of neither. A monster I dreamt up specifically to envy. (laughs) I don't envy the great writers. I envy those who believe they might be great. 
You aren't the same person after a good night's sleep as you are after a sleepless night. But which person is you? So many things I'll never try again. People my age who are still trying, I don't know where that energy comes from. Perhaps they're unhappy. Perhaps I'm happy, but I never thought happiness would feel like this. Turn 40 and suddenly you're too old to die tragically young, but at least you still have a chance of dying fascinatingly old. Um. One of the other many things this book is, is an excellent midlife book. You know, there's this, there's a sense. Midlife book for sure. Did, did yeah. it? Did it? Did you notice that in the pieces and that that oh, they started yes. kind of like yeah. gathering as a theme too? Or yes, and um, you know, maybe maybe I was just kind of leaning into this cliche all my life, but I really really felt like the midlife crisis is this, like it, it actually is happening. You know, I think I'm done, but like I, I was having it. <laughs> at the time that I was writing these, and there were just so many little frustrations and nasty thoughts, and I mean, I just, I had to expel them and in, in these, like, you know, pellet form. And, uh, yeah, yeah, this book is absolutely, it's a, it's a book about failure, it's a book about midlife, it's a, it's a book about getting comfortable with failure, it's a book about recognizing that failure is actually, uh, you know, a, a legitimate skill that you need to learn and practice, um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the book in which I, like, almost but not quite, uh, you know, kind of understand and accept the kind of writer that I am and the kind of books that I write. And we talked about it, too, and it's interesting. It, you know, there's something about this perspective that, you know, we talked about in, as, and kind of unironically as wisdom literature, you know, mm-hmm. in a sense. Yeah. And um, uh, is that the kind of literature that you read? I mean, I, I mean, we, when we think of it as inspiration, oh. you know, like kind of inspirational, inspirational literature, but it's not—that's probably mm-hmm. not what we're talking about. Well, um, the the short texts that I read, I feel I, I feel inspired by, but I don't think they were, you know, deliberately constructed as you know, yeah. like a pretty book with gold. On but there's the cover, a sense. But I could know. have imagined like you writing a, a, a series of pithy, like kind of barbed sayings 20 years ago, but they would have had a very different perspective. They did. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, speaking of, so, you know, I sort of referred to it at the beginning, but, um, you know, you started your career writing poetry. Um, you wrote memoirs. Um, uh, and then you wrote Ongoingness, and now this, which was aphoristic and not, and had a couple of different kind of stories in it, I guess you would say, um, but, a, you know, more of a memoir. And now this, um, which some people have said is like a return to poetry. Do you distinguish your own writer? You're writing that way? Do you even think about it that way? Or um, I mean, do you I, feel well, like you were writing something different when you were writing poetry than when you were writing your memoirs than when you were writing No, material? it's all the same subject. I mean, it's all the same project, but it's... Uh, each, each book kind of needs to take the form that it takes, and... It's usually prose, but um, you know they've been getting, they've been taking on longer silences and more silences, I guess, than than they did when I was starting out. And I'm more interested in, like, you know, athletically controlling the silence and using it as this really, uh, you know, vigorous part of the structure. I, I I love the white space and ongoingness. You know, and I know it's like disappointing and frustrating when you're like, there are just three sentences on this page. I mean, you know, you, the, I I could anticipate the complaints that people would have about that book and this book. Um, and yeah, there there I know I know the review that you're talking about in which this was um, 
uh, called, you know, it's, it's poetry. Like, you know, the, the thesis of, of, yeah. of this person's argument was that it's poetry. And I, that's fine. Like, I, 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 don't, I don't mind it being called poetry. The only thing that I don't want the pieces to be called are, is, is fragments. Right. And can they're you not actually? I think I think that's yeah, they're complete, true. Each one is complete in itself, and they you know cohere and they create this this larger essay in three hundred parts. Um, but you know maybe it's made of poetry. If that if that you know helps you make sense of it or you know find a way into it. I know. I always feel like it's not lineated, so let's start there. Yeah, well, prose poetry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. That's, um, oh, maybe well. you could talk about a little bit, and then we'll read a little bit more, and then take questions. Um, um, about the organization of the book, because we went through, I mean, even probably before I started seeing it, you went through a lot of different um, ways to put the material together. And I guess that's another way to say the thing as a whole, which is that once you start talking about organization of a bunch of short pieces, you're talking about narrative, which isn't to say story, but you're talking about movement and um, flow. And um, could you, you know, we obviously yeah. went through a few iterations. Maybe you could describe them. Yeah, we did. So narrative is not a natural, you know, mode or talent of mine. And I was extremely resistant to even trying to put them in order because I, I'm I'm just not great at you know putting a narrative in order or anything. And so the original order was um, I think in kind of a salute to this Jenny Holzer piece that I've loved since the '90s called Truisms, and it's just. It's a, it's a bunch of one-liners derived from Eastern and Western philosophy, and she organizes them um, in the piece that I have in eight posters alphabetically by, you know, by first word. So as I wrote them, I would, you know, I would neatly file them alphabetically because I, any other, any order seemed absolutely arbitrary. And so if that were true, which I felt deeply it was, um, you know, alphabetical was just as good as anything else. And it was actually kind of a great way to look at them originally because there was no attempt, you know, to group the ones about envy together or, to, you know, to, or yeah. to sort of like trace trace this like story or, you know, provide a momentum through those four or five pieces about envy. It was just all, everything, all everything all mixed up. And it, you know, I, and there were 300 of them and then they were in alphabetical order and then, and then I was done. But, you know, of course... There were, uh, you know, wiser and different, different brains. Kind of. I think we had we had seven sections at some point earlier. We had on, right? sections. We had sections with and without titles. Um, we had. There, yeah. There, I think there was a moment where. I did this annoying publisher thing, or, you know, where like let's try to put these in sort of chronological order with the story, the personal oh, stories from when you're young. Yeah, there, were, there were many. You know, yeah. yeah, there were many. And that just didn't work. And I mean, I think another writer could have done that like very beautifully, but uh, I just, I just feel so um, overwhelmed when I have to put even like ten things in order. I mean, in a piece of writing, and these are three hundred things. So <laughs> it, it. Um, it's it weirdly unwieldy, work. even though it's small. It's yeah, incredibly yeah. unwieldy. And honestly, the, the seven sections, that was the step forward into being able to you know, put them together from one to 300 the way they are now. Um, and the seven sections were like self, others, desire, work, art, work, failure, and death. Right. In that order. And once... It's always ended with failure and death. Failure That's and death. never changed. Once that... <laughs> Once the, you know, and, and the, the sections themselves were just, you know, these groups willy-nilly. Like, it, it, there was no, I believe they might even have been, you know, I alphabetized them after that. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, 
But once they were in the sections, I could deal with like 40 at once. That was just about managed. I was like putting a book of poems together. Yeah, you know, like 48 to 64 poems, 48 to 64 pages of poems. And so that felt manageable. I did the sections. We put together the sections. And then there was quite a bit of like uh, wanting to transition not quite so quickly from yeah. section to section. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you did, I think your fingerprints are all over this sort of like one section going into another. And then finally, the, all of that scaffolding was removed because right. I didn't want sections. I didn't want front didn't want matter. Signaling. I didn't want yeah. back matter. I didn't want anything in the book except the arguments. Um, and that that's basically how it Yeah, they're still, they're still sort of there. They're kind of bare. In a way, they're just unlabeled. Yeah, they're, um, yeah. But they're, they're somewhat yeah, there. They're yeah. there. They're doing their job. Yeah. Um, well, maybe you could read a yeah. few more of these, or a handful more of these, and then we could take some questions. OK. Um, I'm going to read from toward the end. So did we, let's see. Oh, you know what? No, I'm going to start here. This is a good one. Um, I'm, on, I'm on 79. Yeah, great, great. At 40, many of my college friends are either wildly successful, dead, or almost dead. That's the outcome of 6,000 adolescents being told every day for four years that for them, the best and brightest, anything less than wild success is failure. I heard wailing, a woman's voice. I turned to look, and as I did, I heard someone standing nearby murmur that a child had gotten lost, disappeared into the enormous park. Then I saw the woman. She was running, careless of the scene she was making, carrying another child in her arms, a smaller one, too small to wander away and get lost in a park, a baby. First thought, how terrible that she cannot kill herself. I wish I'd known at 21 when I developed a chronic illness and became suddenly alienated from my peers that over the decades, one by one, all of them would come to join me on my island. Out of the corner of my eye, I glimpse a cockroach I immediately hope is a hallucination or some pathology of the eye. I used to pursue the usual things, sex, drugs, rough neighborhoods, in order to enjoy the feeling of wasting my life, of tempting danger. Motherhood has finally satisfied that hunger. It's a self-obliteration that never stops and that no one notices. For a little attention, complain a little. For a lot of attention, stop complaining. Only a fire can teach you what survives a fire. No, it teaches you what can survive that fire. When I started cracking my knuckles, I was told it would produce painful arthritic swellings, but it felt so good, I kept doing it. 30 years later, my knuckles are fine. I crack them in loving memory of the old risk. <laughs> I love singing in choirs, climbing out of subway tunnels onto crowded sidewalks, shedding my discreetness and disappearing into the local environment. That one's, that, that's the most about death, I think, um, any of them get. After I became a mother, I became at once more and less lonely. I feel less lonely when I consider the nameless others, the unknown billions who have participated in this particular loneliness. 
Not every narrative is an arc. The universe, for example, just keeps expanding. But from the universe's perspective, the expanding might barely have started, or it might be almost finished. I grew up amid violently white winters and green summers and roaring autumns. Now, in a place without such seasons, I'm stuck in a waiting room with the TV on the same channel all day, and I'm never called in for my appointment. Beside the highway are the mountains of the windward volcano, the green curtains that flutter around heaven. We see them for only a moment, so they look like stone, but the gods watch them billow in the wind. I'm going to read like three more, yeah, maybe? Eight, what fails to kill me will kill me eventually. I want to shed my fears one by one until there is nothing left of me. I didn't know how to knit when I joined a knitting group with a half dozen women who had been born rich. I thought I'd learned something they all knew, but in the end I found there was nothing they all knew. There was just money. I'm going to read wait, one more. Sorry, yeah. this just feels appropriate. There once was another Sarah Manguso. She lived in Colorado. <laughs> then she changed her name and disappeared from the internet. I miss her. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Thanks. I really love that one about money. Is so like that Hemingway Fitzgerald line too. The, oh, I don't know that. It, um, oh no, it's probably better. You shouldn't say no, it. No, it's the, it was what, what, what it was like Fitzgerald said, of course, in his way, because he was obsessed with rich people. That um, he's like, the, the, you know, the rich are different from you and I. And Hemingway, in his way, said, yes, they have more money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, something like that. Um, anyway, we can take some questions if you have some. You have to be super pithy. Oh. Going at the show, thinking you said Daisy smells like money. She smells like money, which I was, that was really interesting too. Oh yeah. So, so talk about money. What I mean, what what are your thoughts on money? Um, well, it's one of the things that I'm trying to talk about or write about in the Boston the Boston book. You know, the really long book that I'm about to start. Um, it's just like the universe. It's either yeah, just Boston started or like the yeah. universe. Um, you know, I grew up in I grew up in New England, which is a place where the social pecking order is the same as it was in, like, you know, 1650. And in my town is very much like this. And, of course, it was my default situation growing up, and I stayed there for college, too. And so, you know, it was so in- entrenched that when I finally left New England and moved here and, you know, married somebody who's from Hawaii, where it's just not like that... Um, it it became more interesting, and I can I can now see it as this ob- objective thing, as opposed to just like the, the swimming pool that I was drowning in until I was 23. Um, yeah, what makes you ask the question? It's I like it's a good first well, question. Well, you know, I just wrote, you know, I think Eastern money is so different than Western yes. money. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I I mean I don't even understand Eastern and, money, and but money, Western money like sort of just changed into a whole different thing in our lifetime. Even it just became this instead of this um, suppressed thing, it became this staged thing. And, um, that's kind of interesting. And I guess now that we like how the, someone leading our education that doesn't want public education anymore, so it's going to be like, education's going to be for the rich by the rich. And 
So it's like money is going to be really different than the rest of us. It's going to it's going to grow farther and farther, I think, than the rest of us in a very interesting way. Um, and when I say us, I mean for people coming out there. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Kind of following on that idea about money, I was interested in the talk about big book and small book and those kind of things. Obviously, those are marketing questions for a publisher like you as well. So maybe you guys can talk about how that plays into the idea of a big book or the pressure on the writer to, to write a big book. Well, it can take a really long time to write a big book, and then it becomes... Um, you know, it's it's more feasibly marketable because look, a big book. You should, you know, it's important. It buy it. it. But you know, if it takes you 14 years to write your big book, then even if it sells, you know, it well, can... there's, there's also a myth that big books take long. I mean, that's not also necessarily right. Either. It's not it's always very, true. Like a you know, very small um, book or a book of poems can take years to right. write. You know, so there's a it's just a fallacy in there. But um, um, but yeah, I mean, small books are described as gems, as you know, right. so, you know, they're, they're, as things to be kind of maybe admired, but uh, but that aren't big statements about society or something. So publishers will often try to force you know somebody into a bigger subject or something. But um, but of course, often you know, as often as not, the big books fail to be big books too, just because most books fail. Yeah, Jim Richardson has a great aphorism about this. Actually, um, if you're Bishop or Larkin, one book a decade is enough. If you aren't, it's more than enough. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, in the very back. Um, I don't know if this is going to um, sound aggressive emotions for you, but do you feel a connection to something like Twitter? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have two things to say about Twitter. One is that I don't do it because I know I would become obsessively. Um, you know, I don't. I don't write f- quickly. You know, I every every sense in here is just overworked. Um, I mean, you know, of course it comes out smelling like a daisy, but you know, it, it's. Um, I don't. I don't toss them off. I don't toss things off. And um, the other thing about Twitter is that it was founded by my sixth grade crush. So I feel like a, a real fondness for it, despite it, you know, having become the kind of clearinghouse for, you know, violent white supremacists to like <laughs> threaten people with rape and murder. Um, you know, Biz Stone had his, you know, his heart was in the right place. I think this is my my fantasy event well, is that Biz and Sarah will, will he'll sit there and <sighs> finally together. Together. <laughs> Again, to be on and yeah, yeah. Disappoint him finally. God, are you setting me up for further disappointment? <laughs> Wasn't 1985, bad enough. Yeah, second row. I have never been able to read philosophy because I get through with one assertion, which I often disagree with, that I kind of can't go on to the next one. So the only philosophers I can read are E.M. Chiron, or people that write with just one assertion at a time. And, you know, this me is is a perfect example of that. So it's I oh. want to thank you for oh, making me feel you. like I just sat and listened to some philosophy which I enjoyed and understood. Thank you very much. Oh. That's thank you. That's quite a compliment. And you and EM Chiron I love Chiron. I mean, you know, as Richard Howard translates him, but yes. There, I mean, there is a quality of propositions in some of these, too. I guess maybe those are some of the ones that I think of as logic-y. But yeah, mm-hmm. logic-y. 
That's a hard question to answer because for me, writing a book isn't like what I do full time for you know a set a set time. But um, and some of the earliest pieces are like 15 years old. But uh, God, I don't know. Do you know? When I first started, I should know the answer to this question. It's like it's a, a few years. Yeah, I, well, like actually starting to realize I was, that they might be a book. Yes, for a couple of years. A couple of years once I kind of signed on to the idea that I was writing a book of them. But I mean, I was definitely I was toying with the form for like for quite some time before that happened. But then it came to you know it came together. I, like I got from two hundred to I got from one hundred to two hundred fairly fast, and then two hundred to three hundred a little slower, and then put them in order, and that took a lot longer than writing it. But the whole thing was like two or three years, I think. All the way in the back. Uh-huh. Do you have like a favorite one or one that's very special to you, and, and why? Like, did it take you, you know, a long time to write, or was it very easy, natural? And you- yeah, the, I have a few favorites. Uh, the one on the back, um, think of this as a long book, you know, the, the quotable passages. Um, I, I also am fond of the, the one that's sort of the myth with the, the mountains around the Windward Volcano, which I just read. I, I like that. It's kind of an oddball. Um, yeah, I, I, like, I like the oddballs, mostly. Uh, but I, I don't have one single favorite. Is there a reason that you... Like, is there a particular reason can you wrap your head around why those are your favorites? Yeah, what, what makes well, them an oddball, maybe? Maybe you could read... Re- oh, well, I mean, I think that's the only one that I think could be described as myth. No, it's like... It has, you know, the gods watch them billow in the wind. Like, uh, there, is, there isn't another one that really... Um, kind of treads on that religious material. Um, directly. Yeah, directly. I mean, that's the only one with the word gods in it, for example. And so I feel, you know, I feel maybe a little protective of that one among, you know, all of these sort of demotic and, you know, ones with swears in them. Yeah. Did you write another book like this? I am writing another book like this. Um, but mostly I'm trying to write the Boston book because, you know, Ethan needs to sell that. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Tal Lynn came here, and there's another mm. woman, um, Monica, I think she's a Latina. I'm sorry, I don't know her name, but her writing doesn't move me. I had trouble with it. And I, Michael Sobot was there that day, a reading here. I went over to my and I just don't get this stuff. And um, he said, afterwards, you know, it's like one word of summing up. Um, and after hearing you today, that doesn't feel right. I still don't get them. I, I went back and I listened to Michael interview those two, and they seem to be expressing catharsis. They, they saw Twitter quick publishing, significant, um, resonant publishing, very serious about a media for expressing it. They saw it as publishing. So I want to hear how both of you feel about the fact that people have Twitter books they're collecting these Twitter books. And even though Michael tried to sum it up for me so I could understand that as aphorism, I feel what you're doing is something deeper, and it is crafted, and it is interesting. It's, I was meditating on it. I was just closing my eyes and listening to it, and it, it did something a little more than poetry, even. And um, I, I'm trying to figure out, you know, like even long-form journalism is no longer... A friend of mine just started a magazine, and it's all short-form. And I know when I open that magazine up, it's going to be a short piece, and I'm really eager to get to it. And it's like there's a feeling in the culture right now where too many words. You know, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. 
you know, as a publisher and as a writer, you know, how, would, how do you feel about um, this new shaping of words and form and content? Well, there's no more, I mean, there's no less good writing than there used to be, but there's a lot more bad writing, I guess is what I would say. So, but I don't know, I mean, I think, I'm not against something emerging on Twitter. I mean, somebody's just got to be a good writer, and I could imagine, you know, if Sarah wanted to, she could put, you know, she could spend months writing these and then stick them out there, you know, and they fit in 140 characters, but, um, and then they'd still be what they are. But my feeling about any good writing is that it just keeps opening up. If you can understand it quickly and move on, then it's probably not terribly good literature. You know, if it keeps opening up, then it's, then it's got something more, and maybe it deserves to be in print. Sure. Was there a certain audience that you were targeting? A certain what? Audience? Oh, no, I'm not that smart. I mean, if... <laughs> no, honestly, if, if I could, like, make a thing that I knew people, like, lots of people would buy, like, believe me, I would be doing that. Because I, I felt like the individual was just saying, it was doing something more than poetry. At certain points, I was building my eyes, and I felt a connection. Great. And there was just something good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That's great. Maybe, maybe one more question? Better be a good one, guys. Come on. You don't have to, but if there's one out there. Or we could just end on that lovely compliment. That's more okay. compliments are good. Okay. There are lots more compliments. <laughs> I want to ask which one, was, if you're willing to share, was the one you ever heard in the camp? Oh, I mean, it says overheard in a cafe. I overheard this in a cafe. I don't know what page it's on. But I thought it was really funny. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I could... Yeah, it's on one of the pages. <laughs> yeah. You'll find it. Do you have a question? I don't know. Jackie and I were just talking about this before this reading. I love this book so much. I got an early copy a while ago. We were talking about how so many of our favorite books these days are um, kind of outside the traditional narrative. You know, somebody mentioned Rachel Cusk earlier and, um, you know, books like that, you know, or um, Maggie's book, you know, Argonauts. They're like, they're not, none of these books are hard to access, but they're, they're not traditional narratives. They're simple, they're easy to read. And, and I think he kind of like, and what he said, in a way, sums it up. Like you don't, you can't target an audience, but you can try to write somebody's favorite book, and that seems to be your effort here, and um, I think it's a very successful one. And I don't want to speak to that or if that feels accurate at all. But that's how it's great to me. That's just a really lovely compliment. Thank you. Well, I think also, I mean, write it. You know, this is a good lesson, and writers have to trust. I think once you start asking questions of like, who am I writing for? Is this the book I should be writing? You're probably going to write a bad yeah. book. Um, and the kind of ironic thing is that actually this book, which seems like super small, is doing incredibly, you know, it's being received really enthusiastically and passionately and it's even selling some kind of this really non-commercial thing. So yeah. it's kind of, um, I don't know, stick, stick with what you do and keep going at it. Um, Good advice. All right. I think we'll thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by. 
and we hope to see you soon.